Welcome to The People in Kaichung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on Kaichung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM, like a broken record magically repaired. Our guests today are Vanessa Place. I think people that actually think that they shouldn't read or don't need to read conceptual work are idiots. But it's it's too easy. It's too easy. And Kim Calder. And in a sense, I am writing from the point of view of that thing that exists only in the space of the trial court, the audience, as though I am a member of an audience that is also being watched particularly carefully. Kim Calder lives in Los Angeles, where she studies contemporary literature and critical theory at the University of California, Los Angeles. She holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Maryland College Park, and her work has most recently appeared in Unsaid Literary Journal, Joyland Poetry, Jacket 2, and The Volta. The Boston Review called Vanessa Place the spokesperson for the new cynical avant-garde. The Huffington Post characterized her work as ethically odious. Place was the first poet to perform as part of the Whitney Biennial, and a content advisory was posted. She's exhibited widely, and Place also works as a critic and criminal defense attorney and a CEO of Vanessa Place, Inc., the world's first poetry corporation. For listeners who are unfamiliar with Vanessa Place's writing, she often appropriates texts from her work as an appellate lawyer for sexual offenders. These cases often involve children, and so fair warning, this episode features some of that writing. You can find The People on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more about our guests as you listen. Vanessa Blaze and Kim Calder, welcome to The People. Thank you for having us. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so, so you guys, your work has a lot of overlap, uh, and a lot of that overlap uh, has to do with law, poetry, and performance. That's correct. I would say Vanessa's performances are much better known than mine, but um, but all poetry is a performance. <laughs> and I've dragged you into a couple of performances as well. This is true. So this is true. Uh, Kim represented. No, you. I sublet a performance to you at one point. You did. Uh, I gave you a dime for consideration, mm-hmm. and I showed up at the reading series and said, hi, I'm, I'm Kim, and uh, Vanessa subletted her reading spot to me, so I'm going to be borrowing her cultural capital. And they had to read uh, your bio, my bio, and then and they I read my work. But they introduced you guys by reading the contract that you guys had signed. Yes, right. and they also the, read the contract. For the sublet, yeah, That's that was right. nice. The reaction was mixed, I can say. Was it? Oh, yes. Ben, ben was there. I was just on the stage, so. Some people looked a little downcast. Some people were maybe expecting it, you know? Yeah. Some people, I'm sure, were very happy. Indeed. I was sad that the contract had an expiration built in. I hope to continue capitalizing on your well-known, well-known name, but you're a lawyer, so can't get away with that. Well, the contracts are meant to be broken, though. That's a job for another lawyer. So. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, tell me a little bit about how you started getting into or interested in the courtroom. Well, um, it wasn't exactly a research project. I I ended up sitting through two murder trials in the course of about 10 years. Uh, one of them, when I was very young, about 16, um, a dear friend of mine was murdered. And so I sat through that trial. And then about a decade later, my mother was murdered, and I sat through that trial. So suddenly, the space of the courtroom really started to inform my idea about being in the world, um, 
in thinking about what constitutes fact, um, what role fact has in narrative, a lot of those questions became really central to my work. Um, and so it's an interesting thing. It's I'm also very interested in the difficulty of capturing the space in words. Part of what I like about the architectural space or the or the temporal space. I would say both the architectural, the temple, the temporal, the kind of physical sensation of being in the space. And for me, a sense of a part of you that goes away when you're in that space. Um, in this case, it would be probably just a very straightforward kind of traumatic thing mm -hmm. is happening and you're almost not in your body. Well, for, well, and part of it is if we're comparing. So you'd be sitting in a superior court in a trial courtroom. Yes. In, the, in an audience. You weren't, were you a witness on any of them? I was. I was a witness uh, in both trials for various reasons. Um, in the first trial, I did the, the, the kind of damning statement um, where you go up and talk about what you think should happen to the person. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I have always been and still am anti-death penalty. Um, and then in the second case, uh, I was actually called as a witness just to testify about um, the order of events that I was privy to, um, character and, things. And so, Vanessa, why did you say that uh, you'd be necessarily, necessarily sitting in a superior court? Trials are always held in superior court, for felonies anyway. And so it, I, I, this wasn't in California, though. One was in California. One was in, California. One was in Nevada. But it, another event, both would be in a superior court, which is I do appeals. So I'm, I'm very rarely in superior court. There's really no reason. And the two courtrooms are set up very differently. Superior court's more of a, I'd say, a, a public forum. To mm. be clear, you, you do appeals professionally. You are a lawyer, correct? Just to yes. throw it out there. Yes, right? I'm a criminal appellate attorney. I represent indigent sexual offenders on appeal. And they don't let you so in to do that if you're not a professional, probably. Probably not. No. Yeah. It's, it's not one of those <laughs> amateurs kind but of. Can it's, you, not, can, it's not an advocation. And you're like a state attorney or you're like. I represent the indigent. In California, you have a right to an appeal just like you have a right to a trial. So because you have a state endowed right, then the state has to provide an attorney for you if you can't afford one. So all of my cases, I'm appointed on a case-by-case -case basis by the state of California. So I'm an independent contractor for the state, basically. And I understand that you were a trial lawyer briefly. Very briefly. I didn't enjoy trial work so very much. The huh. theatricality of it, I found somewhat disheartening over time. And what I really liked with appeals was the sort of pure theoretical space of the law that mm -hmm. it occupied. Because really, if you don't, especially with these kinds of cases that I do, if you don't believe in due process, you can't do it. Because mm -hmm. the, these people don't have much going for them. They're equities. You, most people don't feel sorry for them. They don't have a lot of equities in their favor, oftentimes even their families are not supporting them. So it's much more of a, of um, I want to say Kantian. I like saying Kantian. I say it too much, and I'm going to say it again. But that idea of a duty that you have signed on to do, regardless of how you feel about it. And also the appellate court is a drier place mm. than, than a superior court, than a trial court. There's less people in it. 
oftentimes. It's more procedural, I guess. Well, the difference is that in trial, what you're trying to do, fig- what you're trying to figure out primarily or initially, is whether the person's guilty or innocent. Everybody, as everyone knows, you're presumed innocent. Then the state has to prove the case against you. In a in an appellate court, the presumption's shifted. Now you're presumed guilty because the jury's found you guilty. So the appellate court isn't concerned with whether a witness lied necessarily or should somebody have been believed or what, you know, what were the facts. The facts, in theory, have been established or procedurally have been established by the trial. So what's happening in appellate court is questions of law. What were all of the rules followed? Was evidence let in that shouldn't have been let in? Was evidence kept out that should have been let in? Um, maybe you could get into a, a witness lie, but it'd have to come out procedurally, like there's a declaration that said after the trial the witness ran around yelling, I lied, I lied. So the appellate court is much more concerned with refereeing or policing or overseeing the legal aspects and the procedural regularities of the trial, not did he do it. It's assumed he did it. And forgive my ignorance, but in appellate court, are you dealing with a jury still? No. Okay. The jury's only for trial court. That's the the jury's the fact finder. And that generates a, a lot of the theatricality, I would assume. Right, and that's why right. you know jur- that was part of it for me that I found disheartening was this feeling that I had maybe I won a case because the jury liked me better, or maybe I uh, had an edge because I was more attractive than the attorney for the other side. Whereas on, on appeal, you you make your argument. And you either can make an argument or you can't. Yeah. And sometimes, and also the burden's greater on you as a defense attorney in, in, the, in the appellate court because the presumption is, again, your guy's guilty. So... It's and also just the physical space is different. In a jury trial, you've got the jury on one side, and the defendant is sitting at his table with his attorney, and then the state, the prosecutor, sitting at their table. The audience is in the back. You've got one judge up in the front. If you go into an appellate court, the audience is just lawyers waiting huh. for their cases. You've got the defense counsel, the prosecutor, the state's attorney, the attorney general. You've got a podium in the middle of those two tables. That's where you argue. And then very high up, higher than in Superior Court, you've got a panel of four appellate justices, and three of whom are going to be deciding your case. If you're arguing the California Supreme Court, it's an even higher up row, and you've got nine of them. And you have argued a case in front of the uh, California. Yeah, I've argued a few cases in front of the California Supreme Court. Which is great fun. I it's like juggling chainsaws. <laughs> I want to talk about a, a later, like one mm. of those, uh, one of those Supreme Court uh, arguments that you made. But maybe now is a good moment for you to read from argument, or because well, we're talking about it, or maybe. Or do you want to start? Why don't you read something first, Kim, and then I'll read something, and maybe we can kind of see how the two play off of each other. Okay. That yeah. sounds good. And and in a sense, I am writing from the point of view of that thing that exists only in the space of the trial court, the audience. Um, in this case, because I am either a dear friend, conspicuously so, or a family member, I also feel as though I am a member of an audience that is also being watched particularly carefully. And that is also part, I think, of what interests me of the space. So I'll read two short poems that that engage with that moment. Gallery. They bore into your body facts hard as bone, 
bone, insects burrowing in wood, the pew crumbling underneath. You lean forward. The jury looks over. What a stupid calculation. Leave for the images. Stay for the words. Nowhere but here. Bare lines of questioning. Once in the box, she is an object. They keep saying her name. They keep saying her name. They keep saying... Something of you mercifully goes away. Waking up in the hotel casino by the courthouse, you're smoking too much, hardly eating. People keep saying you've got to. The shower beats down like hail. You sit downstairs at night, pumping money into a slot. So many facts, I've never known so much. The cameras collect everything. She's rushing out to her car, to the casino valet, in a hurry to die. The prosecutor explains the way the knife went in. How and where she bled. You listen. Abandoned building number two. In this large room, now empty, a body was hit with a knife several times. The sternum pierced through. Second courtroom, second murder. A woman, mother, walks into the building, enters the large room. She greets a man she knows. He raises his arm like a return, brings a knife up. Now her body's on the floor. Another man standing to the side in a smaller room sees everything through the open door. He tells the jury how the body cried out, crawled a little, then died. And there is nobody left. Only what crawls through my mind. The woman's teeth, her shoes in the desert worn down by sand. This is an excerpt from Argument. In People v. Marquez, 1994, 28 Cal App 4th, 1315, the defendant, who had a history of beating his two-year-old nephew, admitted to police on several occasions he'd put his finger in the boy's rectum and tried to put or put part of his penis in the child's anus. When examined, the boy's face, legs, and buttocks were cut and bruised, his penis bruised, the area between his buttocks bloody and bruised, his anus red, torn, swollen, and apparently lubricated with something like Vaseline. The pediatric expert opined the child had been repeatedly sodomized given his loss of sphincter control. It at page 1319 to 1320. Again, this is not that. As the court noted in Martinez, quote, it is common knowledge that children are routinely cuddled, disrobed, stroked, examined, and groomed as part of a normal and healthy upbringing. The only way to determine whether a particular touching is permitted or prohibited is by reference to the actor's intent as inferred from all the circumstances. People v. Martinez, Supra, 11 Cal 4th, at page 450. The actor's intent in this case was manifest, not to put too fine a point on it, but appellant literally beat the shit out of Jacob. The touching here was impermissible because it was violent in the extreme, the biting part of a panoply of abuse. Again, when admitted to the hospital, Jacob was unconscious, his eyes swollen, tissue protruding from the right eye, blood was coming out of his broken nose, his lips were swollen and bruised, there was blood splattered on his face, chest, abdomen, and legs, and his body befouled by his own waist. He was in critical condition, defined by the doctor as, quote, impending death. If there was blood smeared around his groin, there was more blood smeared around his head and shoulders, as well as on appellant and throughout the apartment. Jacob testified appellant called him to the bedroom, undressed him, then punched him in the nose and on the back. Jacob could not recall how his stomach had been injured. The acts here were awful, but they were not sexual. 
whatever prompted appellant to attack his son, to break his nose, to gouge out his eye, to beat him badly enough to nearly cause his death, it was not sexual gratification. Appellant's sentence on counts 3 and 7 through 9 must be reversed. An appellant may not be retried on those charges. United States Constitution, Fifth Amendment, Lockhart v. Nelson, 1988, 488 U.S. 3334, Burks v. The United States, 1978, 437 U.S. 1, 10 through 11. Double jeopardy precludes retrial for the purpose of affording the prosecution another opportunity to supply evidence which it failed to muster in the first proceeding. So, Vanessa, um, I know one of the criticisms that's been leveled against your work is that it's ethically odious. And one question I find myself wondering about is what work is actually being referred to there? And I know um, this is a kind of self-appropriation on some level or recontextualization of things that you've written, and now they're being called poetry and people get very upset about that. So what do you, what do you think? I mean, what kinds of work are happening here and what is it do you th- what is it you think that makes people so angry? Well, I think that part of it is the difference maybe if I can say this between my piece and your piece. In w- by which I mean your piece definitely occupies a certain register of loss, of mourning, of to make it cooler, I would say affect. And I think part of the difficulty that people have with my work is that it has an affectlessness. And that they interpret as a lack of ethics. I think that's one of the aspects of it. I think the other aspect that they see as unethical is that I have refused to take a subjective position relative to the material. I don't, I, I neither condemn nor, I, mean, I don't bury them or praise them, so to speak. And what, and what are your reasons um, then, because I imagine that there might actually be a formal, potentially ethical argument in the way in which you've chosen to split up the trilogy. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what's in Statement of Facts, which is maybe the most well-known, mm-hmm. um, and then Statement of the Case versus Argument, which you read from? Well, the trilogy was designed to be a, a companion piece to, I would say, Dante's Inferno mm-hmm. on the sort of grand scale. That's why it was called Tragedia as opposed to the Comedy. And so three sections, uh, statement of facts, statement of the case, and argument. And where the Inferno is, uh, what, what everyone knows it is, statement of facts, similarly, it's their stories, their narratives. And their narratives of of people committing what one might consider to be sins or at least transgressions of some some sort. Oftentimes, someone's been harmed. There are 33 entries in all three books. And whereas the Commedia, each of the volumes ends with uh, an ascent towards the stars, uh, each one of the volumes of the Tragedia ends with a kind of closure or a, a loss in some sense. So Statement of the Facts, again, has the narrative comparison to the Inferno. Statement of the Case, that's the part of the appellate brief where you detail just the procedural history of the case. There was the trial, there was the sentence, there was this motion that was granted, that motion. 
So I analogize that to purgatorio, where you're, something's been done, some offense has happened, but really in the purgatory is about penance. It's about do, going through the process. It's a procedural manifestation. Mm. If you go through a process, you will come out with something. Uh, purgatory, uh, sorry, statement of the case is the shortest volume in that sense. Uh, argument is my version of the Paradiso. The Paradiso, everything makes sense. It's very abstracted, but it all comes in, it all is, is um, reconciled in a kind of teleology, a divine teleology. St- argument, it all is reconciled in the law. So all of these, the horrific facts or the unpleasant facts or the troublesome facts, they're all resolved. They're all resolved through rhetoric, through, through the poetry of rhetoric. The, the striking difference is at the end of Paradiso when the poet reaches to that point where it's just the celestial music in the spheres. The end of argument is the attorney, my letter to the court or my declaration to the court saying I can't find any arguable issues on appeal. So in that sense, that I would say that's the moment where the law reigns supreme, that, that the rhetoric of the law has subsumed the rhetoric of the lawyer, so to speak. But I think that is, if I could go back for a second to what I think is probably underneath the unethical, the charge of unethics or inethics, I think is really people's anxiety of not knowing where they should stand because I'm not telling them where they should stand. And I think that permeates a lot of my work. And I mean, with with this kind of work, it's exactly, it's basically like, well, I mean, that is exactly the question. Uh, you, you were presented with the work and like, oh, I have to figure out where I stand in relation yeah. to this. And it's, that is kind of the genius of it. I mean, that's always been the genius of the tragedy. It's like, no, I, I give it no framing mechanism. And so it is actually just confronting, like, or not even confronting. It's like you're presented with this and you have to figure out, you know. It's like, oh, my God, like, I'm sorry I didn't give you, like, multiple preambles and afterwards about, like, how you're supposed to deal with this. Well, I, I did a you performance know. once where a woman became hysterical. Um, and I've had people walk out. People walk out all the time. But I yeah. had one where somebody became hysterical and had to be talked out of a bathroom after an hour. And she came up to me afterwards and said, how do you feel about doing that to me? And I said, well, I didn't do anything to you. I presented language in a poet, in an aesthetic context, in a poetry context. You had a very strong emotional reaction to it. And quite frankly, what do you go to art for? Yeah. And yeah. the fact is, is that that's not even a judgment. That's actually a question that she can then ask herself. Apparently, she doesn't go for that. And some people don't. They go yeah. for entertainment. They go for reaffirmation of what they think, but not to have themselves confronted with themselves. And so yeah. I think this is a perfect place for you to sort of give us a little intro to the sound piece that you brought in, which is? I've been working a lot with jokes lately uh, I'm s- more known because I've done a, a perform I've done several performances where I perform rape jokes mm-hmm. but the piece I brought in are anti-muslim jokes or anti anti-muslim jokes depending on the joke I guess and you call it an homage to Lucy Lepard yes I'm sorry it is an homage to Lucy Lepard and dematerialization well let's give it a listen just been to my first Muslim birthday party the musical chairs was a bit slow but fuck me, the past the parcel was quick. 
I was walking down the road when I saw an Afghan bloke standing on a fifth-floor balcony shaking a carpet. I shouted up to him, What's up, Abdul? Won't it fucking start? Yesterday a Muslim lady said to me, The Quran teaches us to cover our faces with a headscarf as to not to incite any unclean feelings of lust for men we pass. I replied, Oh, sorry, I was lost in your sexy eyes. What's all the fuss about headscarves in schools? Surely, if you're devout enough to want your daughter to wear the headscarf, you're devout enough not to want to educate her. Americans insist Osama's burial at sea is a Muslim tradition. Five minutes later, Americans admit to confusing Muslims with Vikings. A Muslim walks into a pub and the barman says, Why the wrong place? Katy Perry has edited out part of her new video following complaints from Muslims. In the offending scene, she causes a Muslim to disintegrate from afar. I thought they'd be used to that from Americans by now. I asked my Muslim neighbor if Muhammad was his Christian name. What's the difference between a woman wearing a burqa and a postbox? Postboxes don't blow up. Well, Muslim parents have to use the open wide, here comes the airplane technique. Do they just smash it in their face and make explosive noises? I'm not convinced that faith can move mountains, but I've seen what it can do to skyscrapers. Forming opinions based on ignorance, prejudice, and fear is responsible for 50% of all the violence and suffering in the world today. I reckon the other half is due to the Muslims. You have to give the United States its due for their sensitivity to other cultures. The Taliban said they didn't want non-Muslims coming to Afghanistan and Pakistan, so America sent unmanned drones to blow them up instead. My Muslim friend updated his Facebook status as Muhammad, peace be upon him. I set mine to atheism, peace be upon the world. How do you save a drowning jihadist? Neither do I. Laugh and the whole non-Muslim world laughs with you. I saw the headline, Islamic Court Tries Nigerian Gays. I bet they secretly enjoyed it. I never thought I'd find myself agreeing with a Muslim, but he had a bomb. What's the difference between an Afghani military base and a Pakistani elementary school? I don't know. I just fly the drone. Jesus and Muhammad were hanging out, and Jesus moaned, Mate, people don't care about me anymore. I really envy you. All these years, and you still have the ability to get people fired up. What's your secret? Muhammad thinks for a moment and says, Well, Jesus, there's a number of reasons, but I refuse to be drawn. A Christian and a Muslim were sitting in a pub talking. The Christian said, Christians are so discriminated against in this country. The Muslim said, You are joking. Muslims have it much worse. Islamophobia is everywhere. Nonsense, said the Christian. What do you think, barmaid? The barmaid replied, It sounds to me like you're having a competition for the title of most persecuted religious group. You wear your alleged victimhood like a badge and actively seek out opportunities to take offense, as if every slight or critical remark is a vindication of your beliefs and a chance to display your piety. As she walked away, she said, It's rather pathetic, really. The two stared at each other for a while, and the Christian said, See what I mean? She's attacking Christians. The Muslim said, I think you'll find her remarks were directed at me. So what is the rule on joking in Islam? 
Is it among the idols speech, or is it speech that is not truthful and thus not permissible? Praise be to Allah. What's the difference between a pedophile and a terrorist? A pedophile actually gets his virgins. What's the difference between a banker and a terrorist? Terrorists fuck up the world for free. I think 9-11 is wrongly judged. I mean, like, 3,000 people died, of which 20-odd were terrorists. The United States should be congratulated on a surprisingly high terrorist-to-civilian death ratio by their own standards. BBC Met Chief warns of terrorist subway attacks. There's a lot I'll put up with, but fuck will I stand there and watch them ruin a good meatball marinara. Police are looking for members of the real IRA after the shootings in Belfast. You know you've reached terrorist superstardom when you start getting tribute acts. As I sit here and ponder the state of the planet, global warming, terrorist threats, ongoing wars between nations, nuclear proliferation, oppression, starvation, genocide, famine, I can't help but wonder, who's going to win Celebrity MasterChef tonight? Recently, I've been described as a sexist, racist terrorist. I think that's unfair. I've got nothing against terror. I'd like to be a terrorist. You get to go everywhere. Once. In a way, aren't we all 9-11 survivors? When I said I was interested in working with jokes, part of what interests me about it is that I see jokes as a language that's fundamentally violent. And in your piece, one of the things that you were really addressing was the violence of language in a courtroom from the perspective of uh, a witness who's also a victim, in some sense once removed a victim. Can you, will you, how do you, how do you, work with language when language is the thing that you've experienced as as a violent encounter? Well, I think uh, I do so very painfully. I mean, unfortunately, I think what I realized after leaving the courtroom and, and the, the moment that I actually walked out was when they showed the photographs of the body. And I imagined this will be the thing that will traumatize me forever in some way that I won't be able to come back from. But what I found instead, and I feel like I should know this as a poet, but I didn't, that the words, the phrases were actually the things that kind of stuck stuck in my head. Um, and so in a sense, I felt compelled to recontextualize them in, in some way because the, and, and you spoke about this earlier, but the sense of the theatricality um, of the trial courtroom was something that for me was extremely distressing. Um, both both the defense and the prosecution were very difficult for me to watch. Um, and it, it to me, it was a kind of reenactment that is a very strange reenactment because it's both very charged with affect, but that affect is directed toward convincing the jury. And then the facts, the things that are maybe the most horrifying, have to be completely deadpan. Well, it's a, perfor- it's a performance, right? I mean, it's a performance in any of these situations, but it's also it's a triangulated performance. Mm. And to my mind, that's what 
when you're giving a poetry reading of these poems, you're also engaged in a triangulated performance mm. where you're speaking your, your formation. And for some reason, I, I, I tend to think of language in sort of sculptural terms, but your sculptural formation of your language around these, this, these events or, or what you witnessed which was the courtroom, not the crime, right. and presenting it to not a jury, but a, but maybe a jury, yeah, a different jury. Yeah, and I do think about it that way. And even just reading the poems, I always find myself back in that triangulated space. Um, and I do imagine the reader as a kind of jury. I also wonder if my own work is ethically odious. Like, do I have the right to write this is a question that I ask myself a why lot. do you, why do you think that's a question to even ask well um, because as you say like I am I mean well this not, this sounds a little absurd um, in a sense but is it is it okay to speak for the dead like in in some sense um, I am speaking in my own experience at the same time in order to do so um, I am reenacting something that is um, traumatic, not only for me, but I imagine for the reader. That's also a question I think um, that could potentially come up in your work. Like, where does the affect end up living? Um, and if, as you know, obviously, as a lawyer, you don't want to get up and start weeping while you're while you're uh, while you're talking because that. Well, or what's more horrifying is you would have absolutely no inclination to start weeping. Mm-hmm. But and this is the question of the poetry you witness, and it. For some reason, like thinking of it as the poetry or witness is one thing. I always think about that, uh, the photograph of the like um, the Vietnamese guy getting shot in the head, right. and it, mm-hmm. the the question is always, well, why didn't the photogra- photographer do something? That's a different. That's that's a question that kind of pertains to the poetry or witness. But the poetry or witness has to like somehow affect the feelings that one felt of horror or whatever. Back up and, and yet explain at the same that time, poetry witness. Well, I don't know, but, but I would disagree. I would disagree yeah. slightly okay. in the sense Great. that I think one of the standard roles of poetry, if, one of my large arguments is that part of the work that I do sort of belies uh, the idea that poetry is anything in particular. But one of the standard jobs, one of the traditional jobs of poetry is to bear witness to the mm-hmm. world, whether we're talking about the Trojan War and Homer or whether we're talking about Walt Whitman and the Civil War and the birth of America or whether we're talking about some horrible person today writing some stupid lyric poem about the L train or something. But <laughs> but that is the job of poetry mm-hmm. in a sense. It's to, it's to represent. But t- traditionally... Um, well, not traditionally, since the Romantics, I would say, that the witnessing has been done with the poet being the vessel, being the sort of oracular conduit for witnessing. And in that way, I would say your work is still, not still, but, but is in that register. It's, mm-hmm. it's continuing that, that job of, of bearing a kind of witness to a personal experience. It's not affect laden in the same way as as a traditional lyric poet would be I would say I would argue too though that in a sense your work as much as it resists that role has to play it in some way because 
as a when the reader comes to the work, right? If if I'm, I'm there's sometimes a charge that well it's conceptual work, so you don't actually have to read it. But if you do, right. um, you as a reader are in fact very much bearing witness to what's on the page. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to read this, or I mean maybe somebody could read it without getting upset, but that would potentially worry me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a very different position to be in than you writing this writing this writing in a different context um, initially. But there still is a work that's gone into it, and you still are the creator of these words. Sure, and in that sense, this work is a little bit different than the jokes and different than your work. In, in, my function's different. But with the, with the jokes, though, I agree with you. I think people that actually think that they shouldn't read or don't need to read conceptual work are idiots. But... <laughs> it's it's too easy it's too easy because really what you're reading in some ways is the work but actually you're reading yourself Mm -hmm. that's what you're really reading and that's the part where I think ethically odious uncomfortable offensive whatever what it is is it reminds me of one of the things Lacan says about anxiety is he wonders at one point um he says, why is it that people aren't happy when all of a sudden they see that their totems are suddenly emptied of content? Mm. The thing that they thought was a repository for a certain meaning, that meaning is evacuated. And I would say that, and I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I would say in some ways the death of a loved one is also that moment. Mm. The totem loses its content. The figure no longer can can be that figure. And with my work, what I'm interested in is evacuating the content, not by taking literally the content out, but by taking out how you are supposed, you don't know what that content is suddenly. The totem remains. The, the piece the, the piece to read, the piece to encounter, the language, the moment. But, sh- but the content has been taken out because you don't, one doesn't know. You're just left with yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's a very vertiginous feeling for people. It's a very upsetting people, feeling for people. People, for better or worse, they want to be right. I would imagine the piece that... that your, that you read and that your work, the thing that's locating is the horror of hearing someone who was who was someone become not someone. But in a sense, is, isn't that also the work that you're faced with in doing the job that you do um, in the sense that you are representing people who many people would consider to no longer be a someone, right? To have sort of become inhuman. Um, and so you become you become a way of, of both speaking, although in a very removed way, um, the atrocities that have occurred, but also sort of speaking the humanity of what has been deemed the inhuman. Well, I like to say that I'm the, um, I'm the ventriloquist dummy. Mm-hmm. I'm the mouthpiece, and, which is obviously a slang word for a lawyer too. Just to be the mouthpiece, <laughs> but but how is that different, like in like in a text versus an actual performance? Like, what kind of strategies or 
like ways of approaching like presenting the same work when you know there's a room of five or 500 people including i think in the courtroom like when you actually yeah. read yeah these. whether it's the courtroom or or like a quote-unquote poetry reading mm-hmm. how is that the same different like you know well, it's a different performance. Again, if we think about the sort of triangulation space of a performance, if I'm in a courtroom, I'm trying to persuade people of something. My affect will be very different. I'm, I'm much more, uh, I'm much friendlier in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I'm much more expansive. I'm much huh. more open. Uh, because, in part because of that, I'm representing people who are, by and large, inherently unlikable. And... So I have to, and I'm representing the losing side. I walk in representing the person who's lost and the person who everyone wants to lose. So my affect in my performance, my, trying, my, my intended audience is, are these justices who I'm trying to persuade of something. I have an agenda to persuade them of a particular thing because there's an outcome I want. And you're, okay, so you're getting there, but you're talking about this triangulation of performance. Uh-huh. Can you explain that? Like, well, what I mean is that there's way? always, there's always, well, first of all, there's the simple thing of there's a triangulation between, I would say, the performer or the author, six of one, or the artist, the object, whatever that object is, whether the object is the performance itself, a text object, or an art object, doesn't matter. And then the, then there's the audience. And this is this is like old school rhetoric stuff. And I mean, you talk about the first persona, the second persona, mm-hmm. and the third persona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think that's. But to me, uh, all this stuff is the same stuff. Yeah. Language. All yeah. language. All the law is is a bunch of language. We just believe it in a certain way. All poetry is is a bunch of language. We just believe it in a some certain way. So all of this is 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 rhetoric in some ways. We're, we're moving language around to have certain affects. Mm-hmm. My interest in poetry is actually to not convince, mm-hmm. to, to evacuate again that space. And that one becomes the performance. And then two, it also sets up, I would say, sort of the bank shot of the triangulation. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not on me. And one of the things that I resist over and over again is, and I quote Hannah Darvovan quoting uh, Carl Andre, you know, never apologize, never explain. I'm not going to, it doesn't matter what I think. What do you care what I think? That's not going to help you in the least. It will only make me, it's only a temptation for me to exculpate myself, and I have no interest in doing that. Yeah, and the fact is, is that when I encounter work like your work, what I understand is that you have a rhetorical goal. Mm. I don't. That's interesting. Um, I don't know that I, often I don't feel that I have a rhetorical goal, but I'm sure that that is an illusion. Well, I would just say, put, let's put it a different way. My sense from your work is you want to communicate something. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, so I guess I wonder then um, if it's clear what you want to communicate, right, to, to the justices. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet you take this writing and you put it in this different context as poetry. So what is it that you're trying to communicate in that or when you perform a piece as poetry? Um, it seems impossible to communicate nothing 
in recontextualizing language in a different way. Well, there's a sort of evacuation, I think, that ends up happening. And I have communicated nothing at different points. You know, I've gotten up and done readings where I don't read for six minutes. And we wanted but to aren't have you, you do that here right, on the radio. Right. Right. But we thought it would be it's called, it's a called, little bit boring. It's called dead air with pages yeah. flipping. Yeah. Yeah. But, are, but aren't you creating a new, like when you remove as much affect as you remove and you, you know, you pull as much do you not create a new thing well but that's not a choice made in a sense for the sake of the poetry that's a choice that's not a choice that is like you doing your job right but then when you choose to put it somewhere else call it poetry or even when you choose not to read something Mm -hmm. there is a rhetoric of that there is well because because a lack of affect is always an affect sure it's the most we know that right yeah i mean it's the coolest well it's it's the thing where for me what it is is it's a little bit of putting a uh a fork in the, in the works. It's a little mm-hmm. bit of putting a spoke yeah. in the in the spokes, well, because it stops it. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, uh, one of my favorite that kind of performances of yours was at Red Cat uh, in the lounge. There's like a window above the 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 area, the performance area, and uh, first I don't remember what reading. I actually think it might have been an Eohippus Labs Something. reading, but uh, you know, it was your time to read, and you had disappeared and so somebody just went up and said okay Vanessa Place is next and then you appeared in the window above the microphone reading aloud outside but on the street outside so none of us could hear you and people walked by and were like what the hell and, you know it, it was it was it, that was my favorite version of that like uh, you know the silent reading but I did a I did a version I did a Brown RISD there was a, com, a com, combined conference and I did a version of 433, but my version of 433 was I got up and I walked out of the room. And I had asked some cage experts whether or not that particular version of 433 had ever been done because cage always still held the, the space yeah. of the performer. He, he, he right. came in and sat at the piano or somebody and did, and Or there, somebody did. Somebody yeah, did. Sure. Yeah. And so there was still uh, this idea of the performer, though he did say in some piece, or more than once, um, that he, it would be interesting at some point the audience would just become the performer. And so I thought, well, sure. that should be literalized then. So I got up and left. And what was interesting to me was, again, given a blank, given carte blanche, given a blank space of four minutes and 33 seconds, what did people choose to do? And some people came out to see what I was doing. And most of them just sat there and continued having their conversation. Yeah, and it's such a better version of that. Because I've gone to various minimalist music pieces where someone's sitting at a piano and you know they're going to hit one key at some point. And so you're just, everyone's sitting there like listening to the, you know, each other's bowels slightly move or whatever. And like twitches in the chairs and they're waiting for someone to hit one key on the piano. And it's like, uh... I'd rather you just walk out. You well, know, I'd rather you just walk out. Well, the but then, That's more then, interesting, the, then the, you know? the four minutes and thirty-three seconds was whatever they decided to do. Yeah, because sure. it, it didn't really, have to do with me. It's the better version of like you. You're actually saying like, okay, you got four minutes and thirty-three seconds. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here the whole time. It's all. It's it's up to you. And they you could know, have. That's... They could have done whatever they wanted. Well, they did sure. do whatever they wanted. Yeah, but in that case, I mean, I would still say like when Kim read for you at that. What was the joint? Doesn't matter. When Kim, con- you contracted Kim to read, uh, like you, 
you were still you, Vanessa, as the author or as the perpetuator the of that piece were still very present in everyone's mind, mm-hmm. like the entire time. You know, I mean, it was like people were like, why should I do all the work is my feeling. Well, sure. But I'm saying like in your absence, in your right. attempt to create an absence right. or your attempt to walk out of the room or de-authorize yourself, if that's a well, phrase. One of the like, things people do critique like uh, some conceptualist work by saying, well, if you really want to get rid of the author function, you shouldn't sign anything or you shouldn't author anything. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that you know, that's, again, a stupid critique because... Because the point is, is you have to have an author function in order to, to engage with the author function, in order to subvert the author, in order to play with it. Mm-hmm. If, in order for me to do that version of 433, I had to be nominated as the performer. Then I could leave the space and have that be the Sure, you had the agency to, to exactly. do that. Exactly. I mean, exactly. satire always only works as a sock puppet. You have to have right. a sock puppet. Right. You know. And so the idea that, and I've, I formed Vanessa Place, Inc. to explore issues of social and cultural capital that, that poetry has, whether it exploits them or not, or is exploited by them. And so part of it is this idea of, well, I have this cultural capital. There's a reading. I could sublet my, my, my space and give my, use my capital to leverage somebody else's cap, social capital or cultural capital. Is there maybe a sense or connection that maybe what makes people uncomfortable in a sense is that you choose difficult affiliations, right? Like you choose, you make a corporation, right? Some people do Occupy, you make a poetry corporation. You are aligned with the law and then you call it poetry. Is, is potentially that part of the discomfort, the fact that you're choosing to lay bare these structures by participating them in a way that that changes the way we see them or that makes them more visible. Sure. I mean, that mature. Maybe. You tell me. I mean, part of it for me is that I do feel whenever I see a trap, the more interesting thing is to walk into it <laughs> and see what happens. Yeah. Hence the jokes. Right. Right. See what happens as opposed to either, to my mind, playing a kind of uh, idealistic good luck to you game of staying, of avoiding or exculpating or not being implicated. But for better or worse, I don't seem to have any particular need to be liked. Mm -hmm. So I'm perfectly willing to walk into these situations and see and explore them and see what happens. Well, Well, I I always, I always always love like, uh, also like there's a thing. It's like, there's all these things coming out. Oh, this isn't the real avant-garde. Like, let's argue about why this isn't the right avant-garde and it's like but my you, favorite is you the just idea. proved your case <laughs> right it's like right. because you're arguing about it you know it, it, well it, and also always, it's also know. any avant-garde that was voted to be the real avant-garde couldn't be the real avant-garde exactly so, yeah know, yeah let's let's, let's vote yeah. on it yeah <laughs> it's a majoritarian proposition so, kim you wanted to you wanted to read a couple more and like where the stuff that you're going to read for us where does that fit into that like that argument of authorship or agency well, I brought this in part because I they are poems that are later than the courtroom poems I read. And in a way, for a long time, I felt like I couldn't write anything outside of that mental or physical space. So interestingly, one of the poems is called Sculpture. Um, mm-hmm. So in a sense, it is about the triangulated performance that takes place when one writes a poem. Um, so I wanted to read them just 
just to kind of think about the way in which a space can continue to inform your work even after you've left it. And in a sense, I think that that's also very true of what happens when you put these documents um, out and call them poetry. Like Mm -hmm. they're haunted in a sense by the specter of the work that you've done previously before the work of deciding to call it poetry. Um, So I thought that they might be appropriate in that sense. Sculpture. The ivy wire dinosaurs on the promenade were removed. Too much good hiding up into the belly from underneath a place to sleep. Thousands of tiny shapes in the dark. Men hold other men down, force them to cut the marks from their arms, dull knifed. Women jump off slept on roofs, flapping like frantic birds, failing systems. A death is always impending, penetration, the climb into the large, dumb body, stretched out arm, averted eye, bruised neck. Light. Bodies happily housed in boxes are brought into the sun. In the sun you see them, in their shining, the unbearable risk, the fear. What was it Antigone wanted to bury? Her grief as much as herself, traitor blood. The body shining in the sun, the bad omen, birds coming down to pick the bones. Death everywhere and the bad history before it. Lock the house up as you will. The lights entering. Okay, so where is Antigone in that poem? She's still in the cave thinking. Uh, So she's thinking... If she's in the cave, then, does she see the reflection? Because that's the problem with being in the cave, right? Is the cave contains the original. You mean in a platonic sense? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because I'm thinking my work has everything to do with the mirror. Right. And the mirror is the point when you have to see yourself. You have to. That's, That's your great break, so to speak. And that is, in a sense, Antigone's problem um, that what happens is that what she what she wants to conceal from herself or from the eyes of the public or from uh, the eyes of the divine is um, not only um, the body um, out of respect um, but who it is that she, that she is like her, her 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 blood her horrible lineage in a sense there may be something at hand in the jokes about that. Like, what what is the what is the relationship in the jokes between when you hear the joke? What is it in yourself that you feel compelled to conceal, or do they hold up a mirror to some ugliness? And what's and what's the joke concealing? I think that's always the greater point. Is what's the joke? The joke is a deflection. The joke is another bank shot. What's the joke hiding? Well, and the mirror is always a, I mean, how we present ourselves in front of a mirror is always a bank shot, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's uh, the way that, you know, one is like presented, one, just even like the way that we interface with, you know, uh, vi- the various hall of mirrors in which we exist Facebook right now. is a mirror. Yeah, so I, was not, I was trying not to no, use that, think, that word. But it, or, or Twitter but, is I mean, a it's mirror. Always, it's always like, sure. let me show you this side. Let me well, show in the structure of the joke, which is more important than the content, yeah. the structure and the timing and the delivery 
of the joke, which is more important than the content to make one laugh, like that that you're a victim to that, right? Yeah, and but you're more yeah, laughing. So the, to but I would the, say, but I would say how a joke function is a mirror is: do you recognize yourself by recognizing the joke? Jokes are all about you have to understand the language of the joke in order to get Oh, sure, it. you're conditioned to that yeah, language. Yeah, but yeah. That but setup, you also right? are participating in that condition. Oh, sure. Right? So, you know, and this goes to the sort of idea of the semi-capitalism. Semi we're happy to participate in yeah. it. So we're happy. So with the joke, it's hiding my anxiety, so to speak, of not belonging by affirming my sense of it's an it's an easy ride it's an easy ride to to do it and antiquity is is no one but the paradigm of anxiety as Hmm. we good lacanians know yes that's true that's true because there's nothing more comforting than a good dose of anxiety and that's i think that's a perfect place to end kim calder and vanessa place thanks for joining us on the people thank you for having us so to speak thanks thank you so much you've been listening to the people on kchung 1630 a.m our theme music is Oct Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. We're going to go out with a song from the band Animal Nudity, and the song is Umbrella. <laughs>